The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. I want to get into the Word this morning. Uh, how many of you are looking for a breakthrough? I see prophetic signs in my house that a breakthrough is coming. My wife is laughing. I told you the other day, like a couple of weeks ago, I just heard, you know, I mean, footsteps. Hearing footsteps running through the house is nothing new. It starts at about 5.30, and it doesn't end until, you know, it's bedtime. But a few weeks ago, I told you, you just heard, like, you know, step, 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 step. And then all of a sudden, it was like my kid just flew. It's like, where'd he go? And then you heard, ah! And there's a hole in the wall in the hallway the size of his head, right? Well, the other day I come home, and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, prophetic signs of a breakthrough, right? And I made the joke, I shouldn't have, that, you know, instead of, like, marking your kid's height on the door frame, you know, we're just going to have different size holes in the wall for where their head's gone through the wall. I got to be careful because I think I'm a prophet. (laughs) I came home and, and, uh, you know, everyone's kind of silent. And I hear my wife say, did you tell daddy? No. Well, apparently my wife is preparing some things and she hears a noise and a crash. Someone comes in and and says, well, we have a problem. I was pushed and I fell into the wall and there's a hole in the wall. My wife's response naturally was, you know, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. How big is the hole? It's about as big as my body. And it is. We'll always know how tall Maddox was at age nine. It'll be where there's a patch in the sheetrock right there. And be like, well, he's about that tall at nine years old, right? So anyway, prophetic signs of a breakthrough. Isn't that awesome? So I'm going to say that all of this personal thing has a corporate purpose. So may the Lord bless you with a magnificent breakthrough. Uh, maybe in a little less destructive fashion, you know, but just the same. I want to get into the Word. I love the Word of God. It's the power of God to save. It's a light into our feet. It's a lamp to our path. It gives direction and guidance. We haven't been called to just stumble through life and occasionally get something right by accident. That's the power of the Word. The fact that God identifies it as the power of God to save, meaning that it's God's power to save in your life, not just to be born again, because that happened one time, but to be saved during all kinds of different frustrating situations. That's the word. I love the word. Here's a few things that we're going to find today. If you're taking notes, I strongly encourage taking notes for this reason. We're here and we're hearing something together, but God is going to specifically speak these things to you. There's a purpose and a reason why you're here. You could be so many other places this morning, but you're here. And I have to believe that God has something in this word specifically for each one of us. He just loves us that much. So here's some things we're going to find in the word. If you want to, you can jot these things down. I recommend it, just things to look forward to. One, we're going to find step three in seven steps to love. Now, that's kind of a series. So a couple weeks ago, we had step one. And then, you know, step two was last week. Now, today's step three. I got news for you. If you want to crack the code, next week's probably going to be step four. But that's one thing we're going to find. 
Because love is, is this absolute goal. I mean, God is love in the Scripture. And so it, it's who God is. It's also got the, the power to drive out fear and anxiety. That's pretty awesome. Because it's fear and anxiety that lead to corruption. It's fear and anxiety that cause us to make bad choices. Well, what if we're going to miss out? Well, I don't want to miss out. What if this is my only shot? Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'll just do it. But if we can have the love of God steadying our hearts and our minds, we can stand firm with no fear and anxiety and we can do what's right. So all of this is the result of love. So love is this amazing thing. It's not just the emotion that you'll see in, in movies and things like that, but it has this wonderful power and authority. So we ultimately want to get to love, but we, we've seen that there's some steps listed in the Scripture. Now today you'll get to see all of the steps, but we're going to talk about step three. That's one of the things we're going to find. Another thing we're going to find is how to know if you, who? You, how to know if you are corrupt. Uh-oh. That's kind of an interesting test, right? Am I corrupt? You probably won't hear that preached in many churches today. We're going to find out how corrupt we are. Yeah, that's kind of funny, isn't it? No one's laughing. It's like, where, where are you going with that? It's not what I signed up for. Go back to that love thing. Tell me about that. We're going to find out if we're corrupt. I think it's important, and it goes with what we need to, to receive today. A third thing that we're going to find is what it takes to win. What it takes to win. I got news for you. I like to win. I really do. If you come on Wednesday night, you might not think so, because we just, you know, the rules are subject to change at any given moment. Wednesday night, sometimes we'll play some games. But in every aspect of my life, I like to win. I don't care if I'm shoveling rock. I don't care if it's marriage and family. No matter what it is, I like to win. I hate to lose. It just eats me up. What it takes to win. We're going to see something here that we need to have in order to win. All right, so here we go. We're going to get into these seven steps to love here. If you've got your Bible, 2 Peter is where we're going. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, you might be familiar with it if you've been around the past couple of weeks because we've looked at it over those uh, messages, but we're going to revisit this, and it's a little bit lengthy. Stay with me, but I'd like for you to read it yourself uh, with your, your own eyes. It's important to see these things in the Word. We're going to read 11 verses here or, or something like that. We're going to start with verse 1. So 2 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. We're going to stop along the way a few times, so be ready to, to stop, pause, and take a few notes. <clears throat> but I love this. Simon Peter is writing this. So Peter's writing this, and he opens by saying, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle to Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I stop here every time. I love stopping here every time. You're talking about Peter. Peter is the guy who stood when everyone else left. Jesus preaches a message. It's not important if you don't know the story. I'm just telling you the kind of guy Peter is. Peter stood as Jesus preached. He talked about communion, actually. He talked about drinking the blood and eating his body, things like we just did up here with the cracker and the cup. And Jesus preached that, and it freaked people out. And it says, everybody left. And you've got to understand something. Jesus preached to masses. So there would have been thousands of people there who were all happy to be there. Man, this guy can preach. And then all of a sudden he preaches that and they leave. Except Peter, he stays. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, are you leaving too? And he says, no, where else would I go? You have the words of life. That's Peter, right? And then here's Peter now saying to you, 
To you, to you, to you, to you, to you who have the faith the same kind as ours. You've got the same kind of faith as Peter. He was there when everybody left. He saw Jesus resurrected. He was there in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came with rushing wind and tongues of fire. He was there preaching the first sermon when thousands of people got saved. And he's saying, hey, you and I, we're the same. There are times I have to just remind myself of that. I share this faith with some really, really awesome, powerful, strong men and women. And that's an amazing thing. So he opens with that. That's how he opens his letters. Isn't that cool? That he would build you up like that as he begins to write to you. Now in verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted or given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This comes through the true knowledge of him who called us to. If your Bible says by, the real translation is to. We've stopped here every time. Big difference between by and to. By is how God would do it. To is what he did. God called us to his glory and his excellence. You'll see that confirmed here in a couple of verses. So God's given us all of these things pertaining to life and godliness through knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. By these, he's given us precious and magnificent promises so that, now I like to say this, can I get a so that? Yeah, so that is important. All of this giving, all of this calling to his glory, all of this has a purpose and that purpose is revealed here. So that. By those promises, you, you, that's you, that's you, that's you, that's you, that is every man, woman, and child in this room, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in this world. God's made you to be a partaker of his nature. Now, we can easily quote the past from Genesis that I'm made in the image of God and after his likeness. The reason why it's so easy for us to quote that but because, is because between him making us in his image and his likeness, there's a fall. There's the introduction of sin. So we're comfortable talking about what happened before sin because we're not accountable to bring it into existence because sin got in the way. But now this, we're a little less comfortable at times because this is after sin. God's made a way by his magnificent promises. By the blood of Jesus, he's called us to his glory. To partake in his nature. Not to be, oh, I'm just a sinner. But I am a partaker in the divine nature. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. That's the magnificent work of his promises in my life, in your life right now. We share in the nature of God. We share in the very spirit of God. Now here's where we're going with all of this. In verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, apply all diligence in your faith to supply. Now, here comes these six or these seven steps, excuse me, to love. The seventh ultimately is love. Apply these things in your faith. Moral excellence. That was one. We talked about that two weeks ago. You'll never be able to operate and function in love without moral excellence. Your love will always be corrupted. Moral excellence is necessary. There's a reason why in the church today we can see a... a homemade or a man-made substitute for love, the love that we see in the scripture, 
where men lay down their lives for one another, where we see sacrifice, where we see foot washing, where we see all of these things that God has revealed to us that are meant to be active in our lives for the purpose of revealing to the world that we're disciples of Jesus Christ, that kind of love requires step one, moral excellence. If moral excellence is missing or failing in our life, love will be diminished. Step two for moral excellence, knowledge. We talked about knowledge last week. Knowledge being the very knowledge of God or the knowledge that belongs to God. God is speaking to us. He's giving us direction. Isaiah says that in that day, and by the way, that day is this day where the Holy Ghost has been poured out. In that day, you'll hear a voice telling you, turn to the right, turn to the left. We have God's voice and direction the same way that you have a GPS in your car. The question is, are we willing to listen to it? Are we willing to go where he's leading us or do we want to go where we want to go? We talked about knowledge last week. Now here we are this week. This is step three. First, moral excellence. Then the knowledge of God, God's direction and counsel in our life. Now today, self-control. Self-control. We're going to talk about self-control a little bit. But you've got to understand how perfect God is. I mean... I don't even know that you can understand how perfect God is. I think it's helpful, though, to pause and at least make an effort. These things are very intentional. They're laid out very strategically in order. That moral excellence would be step one. Then that sensitivity to God's knowledge, His direction, His counsel would be step two. And then once you have that now, self-control, what are you going to do with all of that? Now, the rest of the steps read like this, perseverance. Obviously, it's tough to have perseverance without self-control. And then from perseverance, godliness. And then from godliness, brotherly love. And then from brotherly love, love. What a wonderful thing to see these steps that are leading us and guiding us to this place where our lives are void of anxiety and fear. I want to finish reading the passage here before we move on and talk about self-control. For if these qualities, those seven things, if these are in your life and they are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means we're productive. We become effective and productive. But then we have this set before us. The one that lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from former sins. Now, I stop here often, and I want to again today. If you have forgotten purification from your former sins, that means you've once been purified from sin. That means you're a Christian. So this tells me something. I can forget that. I can be born again and set free from addiction and bondage. I can have all of these marvelous things. And then time can go by and I can begin to value those things less and less and less. And then these things begin to diminish in my life. All of a sudden, even though I'm a blood-bought believer, moral excellence is not the high priority that it used to be. Knowledge, I could take it or leave it. Maybe I'll log on and listen to a message. Self-control, well, we'll see. But it goes on to say this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent, make certain about his calling and choosing you. For if you practice these things, those seven things, if you practice those things, you will never stumble. Can you say never stumble? I think it's important to just say that out loud. That's a promise in the word. 
I mean, think about all of the self-help books and seminars that people pay thousands of dollars to go to to get better, be more successful. But God says, hey, these seven things, put these seven things to practice. Keep these seven things increasing in your life on purpose, intentionally, and you'll never stumble. That's awesome. I want to know what those seven things are. I think it's really important that we all know what those seven things are. And now here's one of my favorite parts. Right about the time you think, man, this can't get any better. This is really good. Read verse 11. For in this, in this way is the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it will be abundantly supplied to you. Just think about that. We can talk about the kingdom, we can sing about the kingdom, we can even preach about the kingdom, but when we put these seven things to practice, we enter into the kingdom. We function and operate inside that domain of Jesus Christ, empowered by his authority, carrying his power and release through our actions. We see wonderful things. Now today, obviously, we talked two weeks ago about moral excellence, last week about knowledge, today, self-control. I want you to take this down for your notes, self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Ghost. This is the first, now, encounter of these steps where it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You can take this down for your notes, Galatians chapter 5, I want to see verses 22 and 23. If you're not familiar with the fruits of the Holy Spirit, they're listed right there, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. I'll read it to you. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against these, there's no law. It means you're never going to be in sin when you're practicing any one of those things. Against these, there's no law. You're never going to have to repent for having self-control. You're never going to have to repent for being gentle. You're never going to have to repent for being peaceful. Never going to have to repent for love. Any of those things. There's no law against those things. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm a bit of a farm boy. I grew up in the city. I, I don't wear boots, don't wear a cowboy hat. But I loved agriculture and pursued farming right out of high school. Loved it. Dug in the dirt, planted things, grew things, harvested things. So when I consider fruit, it, it means something to me. I have an understanding <clears throat> of where fruit comes from. We need to understand that when we're reading the fruit of the Holy Spirit, these are not just things that the Holy Spirit does. These are things that the Holy Spirit produces. They are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to take you to English class, but of is possessive, right? Like you could say this is Preston's Bible, or you could say that's the Bible of Preston. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit's functioning in our life, this is the result. It's what He produces. When we sow the Holy Spirit in our words and in our actions, when we are responding to the Holy Spirit in our lives, this is the produce that comes out. This is the fruit that comes out. This is the effect that comes out. Love and joy, peace, patience. So it's going to be hard for us to have self-control without the Holy Ghost. That, that makes me feel a little bit better at times because I'm a believer I know when I was born again, I know the things I've been set free from, and I know the things that I'm very tangibly aware of right now, the things I can see and the things I can feel. 
But then there are times where I'm not functioning in self-control. Somebody else is controlling me. Somebody has made me mad. Somebody has done something that I didn't like. Somebody's done something a way that I didn't want. Somebody has accused me of something. Somebody has done something even as small or minor as cutting me off in traffic. All of a sudden, I'm faced with something. Am I in control or are they in control? Am I in control of my emotions, my thoughts, and my actions, or are they? I've got a spot on my steering wheel that's kind of worn out from getting hit like this. That testifies of something. That my driving is not anointed by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I want to lay off of that for a bit. But just the same, this is really good. Because this is a choice and a decision. God's never, ever, 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 ever going to take away your will. The fact that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit is indisputable. Self-control is the result of the Holy Spirit in my life. The question is, am I allowing the Holy Spirit to operate in my life? Because that's always a choice. Always a choice. Even in our Christian language, sometimes we'll describe our church services as, you know, well, God took over. No, he didn't. He never will. He never, ever, ever will take over. We have a will. That is what makes us in his image and after his likeness. It's what separates us from the angels and the rest of creation. So this is a decision and a choice to function and to operate in self-control, to allow the Holy Spirit to guide and direct our responses to situations. And when we lose self-control, it opens the door for rebellion. I think that's important enough to write down. If I were taking notes right now, which I already did, I would write that down. If I lose self-control, it opens the door to rebellion. I want to show you some scripture to back this up. Rebellion's a nasty business. We'll talk about it here in just a second. Let me give you a passage of scripture just to start with here. Proverbs 29, verse 11. I like to think of myself as a smart guy. I mean, I really do. I like to think that I function and operate in wisdom. And then I read this passage. And I think, uh-oh. Are you ready? Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Did anyone else think, uh-oh, or is it just me? But a wise man holds it back. Now, this passage here is not completely hopeless. I don't read this and just think, oh, man, I'm in trouble. I read this and I think, okay, okay, I can work with that. At least it doesn't say a wise man never gets upset. That's good news, right? It just says he holds it back. It's how we handle being upset that makes us wise. We're not called to just be pacifists that are never bothered by anything floating around in meditation. Things can bother you. Things bother me a lot. Like, like here's the level where you need to be medicated, and I'm like right here. Did you see that? It barely moved. You've got to look really close. You might even, I might need to move closer to you. 
things bother me a lot. But it's how I respond to that that's the difference between being wise or foolish. Now, that's just some little simple thing, but it's profound, isn't it? How I respond to this is the difference between being wise and foolish. How I respond to a four-foot hole in the wall is the difference between being wise and foolish. How I respond to the drivers in Abilene, difference between being wise and foolish. How I respond to the temptation that comes across my path, difference between being wise and foolish. I want to give you another passage of Scripture here, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Remember, we're talking about self-control. Something happens when we throw wisdom out and we lose self-control. This is a really interesting passage to me. This passage serves as a foundation in a lot of our freedom ministries or deliverance, which is very real and very effective, by the way, when ministered properly. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Someone who doesn't have self-control is like a city that's broken into and has no walls. I want you to just consider that for a second. That city, that city that contains people and valuables and commodities, but yet there's absolutely no defense against outside theft or harassment. That's what having no self-control makes us like. Anybody at any time can just come get whatever they want. Just come push your buttons, pull your levers fire you off. At any time, no matter how much we read or how much we pray or how well we preach, no matter what, all of the sudden, all of that wisdom is gone and we're foolish. When we don't have self-control, we're absolutely vulnerable to everything that wants to come steal, kill, and destroy. Self-control is absolutely necessary. Proverbs 29 verse 22 reads like this. A hot-tempered man, a man that can't control his temper, abounds in transgression. Now earlier when I mentioned that losing self-control leads to rebellion, this is where we're getting that. When we can't control our temper, when just anything can come in from the outside and influence us, and all of a sudden, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are the last things on our mind. When that happens, we lose it. And when we lose our temper, the door is open for us to abound in transgression. Abound means like prosper in it. There's a lot of it. If you abound in something, it's not just a little. It multiplies. It compounds. And then that word transgression, we really don't use that word very often. But it's in the scripture a lot. We ought to know it. It would be good for us to know it. When Moses is talking to God and he asks God to teach him his ways, to to show him his glory. 
God passes by in front of Moses and he lets him see him from the backside. And the statement's made, I am the Lord, gracious and compassionate, long-suffering. He goes on to reveal and he says these things, I forgive iniquity, that's one thing, transgression, that's a second thing, and sin, that's a third thing. These things are all different. Now, if you came to my house and I were to offer you a soda, you know, I might say, hey, you want a Coke? And you'd say, yep. I'd say, what kind? You'd say, Dr. Pepper, right? Because the Coke now is just all soda, right? Well, that's kind of how it is with sin now. We just call everything that's unrighteous sin. Well, it's just sin. Well, it's not all the same. It's not all the same. Sin's like an archery term, like you missed. Well, I was aiming for the bullseye, but I missed it. That's a sin. It's not necessarily just an error or a mistake, but you were actually shooting for the bullseye and you missed it. Then you have transgression. Now, transgression, you hit exactly where you were aiming. You were just aiming for something nasty. That's transgression. Literally, it's rebellion. I know better, but I choose this anyway. I know I should forgive, but no, I just don't have it in me. Forget it. I know I shouldn't go there, but I want to. I know I shouldn't touch that, but you know, it makes me feel so good. That's transgression. Nasty business. It's rebellion. And according to this, when we don't have self-control, we then abound in transgression. When we won't have self-control, when we lose our cool, when we let other influences push our buttons and pull our levers, we may know what's right, but we choose what's wrong. I saw a mom who dropped her kid off at school and I can't help but think that she knew it was wrong to flip me off. But yet she chose to anyway. I didn't know people still gave the bird, by the way. I thought that died out in the early 90s, but apparently it's still a thing. But when we don't have self-control, here comes rebellion. Do you think for a second... That all of this labor in your life to try to get you to fly off the handle is accidental? No. Your enemies, all things dark, have a very keen awareness of this. They know you're bought with the blood, but you know what? We can make them real rebellious real fast. Just start pushing their buttons. Get them to lose their temper. Get them to lay down self-control. All these little tiny things, harassments and things around you, all have this same purpose to get you to knock down those walls that protect your city. And then it is a free-for-all for all things unclean. And then we come into church and we begin to bless God, but we're lifting up our hands that are stained with rebellion. But God's calling us to something so much higher than that. Because He's given us the Holy Spirit whose fruit is self-control so that we can function and operate under the influence of the Spirit of God surrendering to His counsel and His direction, sensitive in everything to respond in a godly way, to function in self-control and not be controlled by those who are provoking us from the outside. <clears throat> I want to give you this as a passage. I think it's important to have this. 
Because I want to have self-control. I don't want to be hot-tempered. I don't want to be controlled by the things around me. I want to be in control of myself. Isn't it funny, too, that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control and not God-control? Think about that. God didn't give you God-control. He gave you self-control. I want to control myself. Now, here's a tip for that, if you're looking for a tip, because we all want to get better at this. This is something that we can all apply, okay? Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Don't associate or go with a hot-tempered person. Now, here's why. Or, or, right? So here comes the reason why. Or you will learn his ways and find yourself in a trap. Man, if we're around people that have no self-control, we might want to minimize our exposure to those people. I've been around people before that had very poor self-control. And I have seen righteous effects from minimizing my exposure to those people. Because what I found was I didn't influence them. They influenced me. I didn't make them more stable. They made me unstable. And it was a horrible situation. But you and I can apply this to our lives right here and right now in the pursuit of self-control, taking uh, the time to examine our lives and look at those that we spend time with and those that we're around and ask ourselves, is this a situation that is having a positive effect on me or is this leading me into a trap? Self-control. Now, I told you before we're going to find out how to know if you're corrupt. Are you ready for that? How to know if you're corrupt. Ah, Let's just skip ahead and dismiss, right? It's about lunchtime. I'm going to paraphrase a story. Paraphrase just means I'm going to tell it to you as I recall it in my mind. But I'd like for you to read it at some time. It's an amazing story. The book of Acts, I'm going to take some passages from Acts chapter 24. But the story actually starts way back in Acts 22. You have the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's written most of your New Testament. As you read those letters in the back, he's written... A lot of that. The Apostle Paul was chosen by Jesus to take the gospel all around the world to wonderful places. But it came at a tremendous price. He wasn't celebrated everywhere he went. In fact, it was very rare that he was celebrated at all. And oftentimes, he ran into difficulty and hardship. And if you read that, you'll see that that's the case. And he stands and he begins to preach. Now, this is way back a few chapters and as he's preaching, he's telling, all he's doing is telling people his story. He's not making a political campaign or, or even starting a religion. He's just telling people what happened to him. That's pretty real, right? Almost like if somebody had the right to stand and tell you about how they were abducted by aliens. He's just standing and sharing an experience that he had. He said, hey, listen, I was going somewhere. I was on my way to Damascus and something happened. And I really think I should tell you guys about it. I saw him. Who? Jesus. The one that was crucified, I saw him. He talked to me. And it was incredible. I mean, the light, I was so blinded by the light that I, I couldn't see. There had to be someone come and lay hands on me to get my eyesight back. It was weird, man. But I'll never be the same. Because every time he spoke, all I could think is, that's the truth, that's the truth, that's the truth, that's the truth. 
And he told me about the kingdom of God. And he told me about how I'm going to go and share that there's good news, that there's resurrection from the dead. He's just telling him that. And he's arrested. He's tormented and harassed. <clears throat> he has the opportunity to stand in front of the, the equivalent to police chiefs and then military leaders. And then finally, he's wanting to stand and give his defense to the governor, a guy named Felix. <clears throat> Felix comes around and begins to talk to Paul. He hears all of the accusations, and then the word says that he looks to Paul, and Paul begins to explain to him things about the way with a capital W. By the way, if you're a Christian, you're a part of the way. Capital W. He's talking about the way, the same way Jesus would stand and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as he begins to tell Felix, Felix is really moved. In fact, the word says you have to read the whole thing and put it together, but you'll see it really clearly that Felix actually enjoys hearing the messages of Paul. Now, Paul stays in chains, and, but, but yet Felix comes and says, hey, hey, listen, no more of this harsh treatment. What this guy's saying is interesting, and I like it. So no more chains. We've got to keep him here, but, but let's just, you know, let him have some freedom. Let his friends come and visit him. Feed him good. <clears throat> so now all of a sudden, instead of being a prisoner, he's more like a guest at a hotel that you can't leave. Now, if you want to keep reading, you'll see this is for like two years, at least. You just have, you'll see it in there when you read it. That's a long time, right? We read it and we think it's like, man, that was a bad weekend. It wasn't a weekend. It was a long time. So for a couple of years, he's stuck there. He can't leave. But it says Felix keeps calling him, keeps calling him, wanting to hear, wanting to hear, wanting to hear, intrigued by the gospel message, intrigued by hearing about the things of God. Until Paul starts talking about two things. Let me read a passage from Acts 24. This is verse 25. But as Paul was discussing righteousness, that's one, and self-control, that's two. And the judgment that comes with, Felix became frightened and said, go away. Go away. And when it's time for me to see you again, I'll call for you. Let me tell you what that's the equivalent to. That's the equivalent to don't call me, I'll call you. Don't come knocking on my door. I'll come get you when I want to talk to you again. I love to hear you preach. I love to hear you preach about the kingdom of God and, and all of these awesome things. I love to hear you preach about joy and about peace. But when you started talking about living right and self-control, I'm terrified. Get out. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And it goes on to reveal why. It says that he was wanting to talk to Paul, hoping that Paul would pay him some sum of money to get out of prison. He was corrupt. He wanted to have Paul come and preach because he wanted something to be in it for him. Now, we're not corrupt government officials, but there's something here that I want us to measure our lives against just to see. Do we come to church to get something out of it? I want to hear you talk, preacher. 
What's in it for me? What's in it for me? But then the moment something's required of you, like living right and self-control, and I don't want to hear that. Don't call me, sir. I'll call you. Do we carry that kind of corruption in us? Where as long as church is bringing something to us, giving something to me, but the moment, I'm fine with that, but the moment it requires me to alter the way I live or the decisions that I make, don't tread on me, pastor. That's a question that we ought to ask ourselves and examine ourselves. Isn't it interesting that this man who's a governor at a time when being a governor is not an easy thing, you're talking about nations that are constantly at war, constantly under siege. If you think that America is in a mess with Iraq and Afghanistan and all of those things, imagine being the Roman Empire trying to keep your foot on all of these nations. That's a hard task. This guy has the guts to lead at a time when it's hard. But the moment Paul starts to talk about righteousness and self-control and the judgment that comes when righteousness and self-control are ignored, he doesn't want to hear it. I think that history is recorded in the Scripture for a reason because I see that a lot in the church. And I've got news for you. On occasion, I even see it in myself. Oh, I'm happy to celebrate and to worship when I feel God pouring things in. But when he calls me to lay things down, I'm a little less joyful. You know what that's a sign of? Corruption. And God's laboring to get that corruption out of me. To get it out of you. To get it out of us. How do we feel about self-control? Controlling ourself. I think oftentimes we've given into a doctrine of God taking over because that really makes us feel better if we don't have to be responsible for our actions. Well, if God would just take over, everything would be fine. But it wouldn't require any sacrifice from us. It wouldn't require any responsibility. And responsibility has been the necessary element to forgiveness and repentance from day one. Or if you want to go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 3 where you'll see sin entering in for the first time. When God calls to give account, not my fault, she did it. I didn't have self-control. I had Eve control. I want to give you a passage of scripture here because we're going to wind down with this. What it takes to win. What it takes to win. What it takes to not be like Felix. To not just love the things of God when there's potentially something in it for us. But to continue to stay passionate about the things of God even when God is calling us to lay things down that we might like. What it takes to win. I like to talk about solutions. I know sometimes we have to talk about the problem in order to get to the solution. But if we leave here all just examining ourselves, feeling a little on the corrupt side, I think that's maybe mission failed. If we can leave here realizing that we can intentionally make changes in our lives 
that position us to function and operate in self-control and all the benefits of self-control, I think that's mission accomplished. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. That's Paul writing, and at one point, he changes tenses here, and he actually talks about how he lives his life. He's talking about a situation, like giving an example for us to live our life by, but then not only does he just say, here's what you ought to do, but he begins to say, hey, this is what I do. I like having pastors who are willing to do the things that they preach. And I'm committed to being one of those. And by the way, whether you know it or not, you're a preacher. In fact, you're your favorite preacher. You listen to yourself more than you listen to anyone else. That's true. It really is true for all of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to begin reading verse 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in these games exercises self-control in all things. I want to stop there and just emphasize that. This race requires putting self-control to practice. And they do it to receive a prize that will pass away. But we are doing it to receive a prize that will never pass away. Now here comes the key. This is really what I want us to look for. Don't you know that everyone that runs this race is exercising self-control? Now I'm skipping down to verse 26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. It's a weird way to say it. What he's saying is, is I run with a goal. I run with a goal. We're all in this thing to win. Nobody runs to lose. You run to win. And it requires self-control. But the difference between winning and losing is having that goal. There's been times in my life where I have been running. But it wasn't a race. I was just getting tired. What makes a race a race? Finish line. It's the only thing that makes a race a race is a finish line. There have been times I've had no finish line. I'm just running and running and running and running and justifying it. I'm running for Jesus. And it just left me exhausted. But then you see how Paul functions and operates as he's describing what it means to function and operate in self-control. I run with a finish line. I run with a goal. I don't run aimlessly. But my life is intentional. Pastor Jared, if you would. And there it is. For each one of us. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But to make room for that fruit to grow and flourish in our lives requires that we live intentionally. 
I'm intentionally going to be careful what I say. That's self-control. I'm intentionally going to be careful what I do. That's self-control. I'm intentionally going to be aware that this response will have effects beyond this situation. That's self-control. I'm intentionally going to go here instead of there. That's self-control. I'm intentionally going to turn that off because of what it contains. That's self-control. To become intentional. I'm intentionally going to get help. That's self-control. Everything we do is going to cost us energy. The difference between wasting that energy running around and spending that energy to win the race is to know where that finish line is. And to get there, self-control. I want to ask you to stand with me. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.